Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science all across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about science stuff. All sorts of science. All sorts of science. Claire, what what science are you going to be talking about? Well, I'm going to be talking about um, some behavioural animal science today, um, about a much maligned animal, the crow. Um, A lot of people don't like crows, but I love crows. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to talk a bit about why they are the most intelligent animal around. Crows, ravens, the corvid family specifically. How about you, Chris? Well, me, uh, you might remember last week I had a bit of a go at um, dental recommendations and that sort of thing. I feel I may have unfairly maligned our our colleagues in the dental profession, so I'm going to try and backtrack a bit. So this week I'm going to talk about how looking after your teeth may be good for your health and the, the possible link between gum disease and other conditions like heart attack and stroke. So, yeah, it turns out it might be a real thing. It might be just correlation. We'll get to the root of the problem. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Stu, what are you doing? Uh, Well, I'm going to talk about... um, Have you ever thought that you might want to grow a new head at any point? Well, if I lost my head, I would definitely want to grow a new one. There are, there are creatures in the world that can do that and there's some really interesting research uh, involving how they do it. And, um, but also I was just going to quickly touch on um, the proposed head transplant that's going on. Yeah. Uh, supposedly going to happen next year, but uh, there's a bit of controversy about that. So uh, don't lose your head, stay tuned and listen to all of those stories. <laughs> You're listening to Lost in Science, and uh, yes, last week I did have a bit of a go at uh, dental evidence, like I said. This week we're going to talk about, going the other direction, talk about how looking after your teeth may help be good for you in other, in other healthy ways. Um, what do I mean by this? Well, there for a long time people have been looking at a link between gum disease in particular and the risk of things like heart attack and stroke. Now, Before I get into the details of what the current thinking is, let me just say that this is not actually a new idea. There was an old idea which was discredited uh, that had kind of people sort of believed though that um, your teeth infections would lead to other problems in your your body. This is something called the focal infection theory. And the idea was that most health problems were caused by some infection and it may be something that is some small thing you don't really notice, but it has system-wide effects on the body. So they're sort of talking about chronic infection, but arising from a single... A single kind of minor infection. Yeah, yeah. source. Um, so this is a theory that became very popular in the kind of early 1900s. It led to a lot of um, kind of extreme responses to things like teeth, um, you know, problems with teeth, uh, people getting healthy teeth removed, uh, and to- tonsils as well. You know, there was like mm. basically um, it was one of the reasons why people got tonsils and their teeth all pulled out was because people believed that yeah it was you had got an infection there it would cause all kinds of strange problems to your body. And this kind of as I said kind of got discredited in the 1940s. People tried to do some trials on this and found that pulling out all your teeth didn't cure you of all diseases and in fact it carried its own risks. And th- so they eventually stopped doing it. However, fast forward now to 1989 uh, when Finnish researcher Kimo Matila 
found in a study, did a study with 100 patients, that those who had oral infections were 30% more likely to have a heart attack. So it was quite a big wow. association. Yeah. Wow, that's that's huge. That is quite huge. I mean, that's a that's not necessarily causal. That's well, let's just say let's just um, all say together um, that correlation, correlation doesn't does equal, equal causation. causation. Yes, this is the thing. So yeah, it is actually more complicated than that. And there are some obvious explanations that you can think of. Like it could be that the people who uh, you know don't look after their teeth also don't look after their health in other ways mm. as well. Um, so I should clarify the kind of the, the exact sort of conditions we're talking about here. It's not just any teeth thing. It's mostly they're focusing on gum disease or what they call periodontal disease. Uh, now, there are two kinds of periodontal disease. There is your gingivitis, which is sort of your milder version. That's where you kind of, yeah, your gum sort of recede and they get red and inflamed. And that's due to like the bacteria building up around the edge of the gum line there in the, in the plaque. And then when it gets worse, it becomes uh, periodontitis, which is a chronic infection of the periodontium. And that's sort of the, the bits that hold the teeth in, all, all that, the stuff. All is the that gums. the bone? And... The gu- it the bone and the gums and this kind right. of stuff. Yeah. Sounds painful. It is, it is painful. And it's believed that these things, they will lead to atherosclerosis, if I can throw another big word, which is a hardening of the arteries. And that's the thing that generally is a precursor to heart attacks and stroke. But essentially what happens is yeah, you get, the arteries get harder, they get plaques build up, um, a clot forms, and that leads blocks blood vessels and causes problems with the, is it, the heart I and mean, brain. It's sort of confusing that you're talking about plaque in the and heart plaque. and plaque in the mouth. Well, they could be connected. And this, okay. is, uh, this is the thing that people right. are wondering about. So, yeah, there have been a lot of people trying to do studies to confirm the connection, trying to get rid of the confounding factors. Because as I said, there are some obvious things that spring to mind. Like um, age, for instance, is one thing. You know, as you get older, your sort of your gums tend to, tend to go back a little bit. Uh, also, as you get older, you're more likely to have a heart attack. You know, this is kind of a known thing. So you have to kind of correct for age. Uh, smoking uh, is known to cause gum disease and also cause heart attacks. So you kind of need to rule out the, the smokers as well. And other things like diabetes is another thing that can, known that people with diabetes are more likely to have gum problems and this sort of stuff. They're also more likely to have heart attacks. So there's a lot of complicating factors. But when they try to remove all these factors, they still find this relationship is there. So... Why is this possible? Well, there are some theories. Of course, there are going to be some theories. Everyone's and some conspiracy theories, theories no well, doubt. Well, conspiracy <laughs> theories. There, there are a lot of theories. When they're looking through the literature of this, you find that the um, the uh, dental researchers are very very keen on this link and very thing, saying we were right all along. Uh, you need to look after your teeth. But the, the heart researchers are a bit more equivocal on this, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so my explanations are that um, it could be that the infection, even though it's a fairly mild infection in the gums, it leads to a systemic inflammation. So the, the inflammation kind of takes over the whole system. Um, they've measured like elevated levels of things like um, a, a marker of inflammation called C-reactive protein that is known to be associated with cardiovascular disease. So that's kind of a possibility. Um, or it could be that the bacteria themselves, uh, now the bacteria involved, I'll just read out some of their names here. The main one that people talk about is called Porphyromonas gingivalis. That's uh, kind of the main one associated with plaque and gingivitis, as the name might suggest. But there's also Streptococcus sanguis. Ooh. And my personal favourite, <clears throat> here we go, Aggregatobacter actinomycetem commentans. I don't think I, sell, I spelled that right. When I tried to Google it, I found one links was how to pronounce actinomycetem. It's like a, I can't say it again. Actinomycetem. It's a lot of letters. Do you want to try that? Actinomycetem. 
Tom comment. <laughs> I can't. No, so nah, it's it's but nah. it's pretty dangerous. It's like it's involved with your, your really chronic um, um, periodontitis. But yeah, it's believed that these bacteria, possible the bacteria get into the the blood. They might say affect the way the platelets operate. They may infect white blood cells. They may even infect the cells of the walls of the artery and. And yeah, and said build up plaque on the walls of the arteries. Some, in fact, some studies have found these bacteria present in the plaques on the walls of the arteries. Um, some other studies haven't found the bacteria, so it's kind of not a definite connection there. Um, but look, as if this wasn't enough, people have uh, looking through the literature again. People have found other links, or claimed that there are other links to various other conditions as well, including um, breast cancer, HIV saying that the bacteria can awaken dormant HIV infection, um, cognitive impairment, and erectile dysfunction. Oh, that'll have to get lots of research now. That will get now a lot of research, They've linked that yeah. one in there. But look, as I said, look, it's something that is still not totally confirmed. People are still a bit sceptical because there are these confounding factors. Cause and effect hasn't been proven. And um, there are basically studies underway to try and find out whether treating gum disease will actually do any good to reduce the chance of, of heart disease. So this is something that people are actually trying to study. They haven't found, um, demonstrated this yet. But in the meantime, though, I think it still makes sense to look after your teeth and gums. Um, there are a lot of the same factors, that risk factors for both of them. So, you know, if you eat a, a nice nutritious diet, that's going to be good for your teeth and your heart. Um, you know, people talk you should cut down on sugar. That obviously causes tooth decay as well as being bad for your, um, your cardio health. Uh, and yes, brush your teeth. Uh, make sure you brush along the gum line to, to remove the plaque, which is the bacteria that are going to kind of cause you your gingivitis and stuff. Um, apparently, it can hurt a little bit if you've got the infection there slightly, but once you remove the plaque, then that will actually in the long run remove the, the inflammation and you'll be better off. Thumbs up to that. Um, look, I think basically what I'm saying is whether it helps your heart or not, who really wants gum disease and their teeth falling out? Not me. No, I, I'd rather not. But it sounds like there's a lot of uh, future research for dental researchers to sink their teeth into. Yes. How do you feel about corvids? That's, you know, ravens and crows. Um, how do you feel about them? Pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Not spectres of death or consumers of carry-on? No, I um, mean, you know, I, I, I don't I try not to be superstitious about things, but I think, you know, they've got a, they've got a useful role to play in the ecosystem yeah, of, the, of the countryside. Oh, good. I mean, because a lot of people um, don't really like them. They aren't the most popular bird. Um, but They have a musical call. They do have quite a musical call. Um, some would say it's quite an annoying call, something yeah. along the lines of, Ah, wow, ow, something like that's that. That's very good. That's very. Uh, did, did someone let a crow in here? Very, very accurate. Actually, crows are on par with primates for intelligence. What? Um, about some pretty amazing corvid feats. So, for example, not, fruit- crow, not crow's feet. Corvid feet. <laughs> That's something different, yeah. Yeah, different different story with that one. Uh, so, for example, our crows have been shown to be able to displace water with stones, um, like filling up a water jug with stones to displace the water so that they receive a reward. 
at the top and can wow. eat something at the top. So basically, they are up to Archimedes already. Yeah, exactly. They're like you know writing writing it all down with their little crow's feet. I'm sure. I'm sure there was a there was a one of Aesop's fables even outlined That's right. that story. Yeah, so yeah. we've known about that for some considerable it was time. The crow and the pitcher, mm. I believe, yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. So crows must have been doing it for millennia. Huh. Um, they're also amazing at using tools. You can um, see them carve wood into skewers um, and use that carved wood as a tool or bend wire to access food. But it's not scary at all. They're like sharpening sticks, but we shouldn't be worried about them. <laughs> You've got glasses, so it's okay. They, okay, won't, okay. they won't stick it in your eye. Right. Yep, you're I think protected. They, they got a bad rap in the Hitchcock film, The Birds. Yeah, yeah. They, they were sort of made out to be... Uh, you know, well, homicidal. they're extremely smart. That's yeah. that's the that's the um, worrying thing. If you're going to go down that path, that's you know what would be very worrying. Now, I want to I want to check with you here because like you did a nice call before, so that was the the Australian one though, the Australian raven. I that think, was is... the Australian raven. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is it the same um, as the crows that we're talking about, or is it they're all related? That's a good question. I, th- I think there's there's a an Australian raven and maybe a l- little Australian raven. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And so they're, they're we call them they're crows, the but they're actually ravens. They're actually they? ravens. Okay. Yeah. Um, so a study's just come out in Nature Communications that is showing that um, these ravens or crows have the ability to understand and imagine that another crow could be spying on them, even without actually seeing this so-called other crow. So let me just explain. Again, you're not filling with confidence. You know, we shouldn't be worried about these birds, but they're worried about themselves. They are. They are. They're very worried about themselves. Now, before I explain the experiment, know this: um, crows love like caching their food. Like putting it in little caches. Yeah, they hide hide it hide it all around the place so they can come back later. They love hiding it in all these secret places, and they have an amazing memory, and they can remember up to like yeah 20 to 30 different locations which is really handy because they don't have a very good sense of smell so they can't they can't seek out their food via um olfactory responses they need to remember exactly where they cached it um now like i said these crows are very sensitive to other crows watching them as they hide their booty um and they've been known to casually change their behavior if they can see another crow so they start doing things like um hiding things really quickly if they see another crow or um, holding off on making a new um, cachet until they can see that there's no more crows around or even like putting up little barriers so that then they can hide behind them and, and hmm. sort of work in, in, in peace, like knowing that the other crows can't see them. Um, but this new research shows that, uh, that crows and ravens can actually interpret their surroundings and imagine being spied on, um, even though there aren't any birds spying on them so these researchers took 10 birds uh-huh. um, and over a six-month period they put these birds in a room that was full of food and full of good places that the birds could hide the food in um, and then in another adjoining wo- room was another set of birds um, and a window between the two rooms mm-hmm. um, they left this window uncovered so that the ravens in one room could look at the ravens in the sort of like high food caching room. Okay. Um, and then when the researchers covered the window, um, they left this tiny little peephole that the birds were taught that in this peephole, the birds from the um, spying room could see through. 
So the birds were taught that that peephole actually meant that birds could see them. Okay. Um, and they opened it. So when the scientists removed the birds from the spying room and just played crow sounds like the sounds I was making before, um, the birds in the room with all the food would hide, like hide and cache all of their food. So, and then the scientists then would open and close the peephole and observe what happened. So when the peephole was open, but the window was closed, these ravens took extra care to hide their food. But if the peephole remained closed, then the birds, even when the raven noises were audible, somehow concluded that they could not be spied upon. Ah. So they were sort of like, they, they figuring knew. figuring out how the peephole worked. They just had figured out how the peephole worked. Yeah, so it's a pretty profound discovery because it shows that the birds have this understanding of what other birds can see and not just by looking at these birds and seeing what their line of sight is, but actually concluding that mm. because this peephole is closed, then these birds have no way of seeing them. Right. Um, so one really elegant study shows that crows can handle analogies and recognise sameness and um, differences and sort of patterns. Okay, so imagine this. There's two crows trained in how to identify items by colour, shape, or the number of things, like the number of items. Now, researchers would have put a plastic tray and three small cups into the birdcage. In the middle cup, um, it was covered with a small card, which either had a colour or a shape or um, a certain number of items on it. And then there were two cups, which were also covered with cards, one that was exactly the same as um, the first cup and one that was not. Now, the crows had no trouble in looking at the first card and being like, okay, that is two circles and that's two circles, so this is the cup that I'm going to get to and then they would go into that cup and they'd get the mealyworms out and that was totally fine. It was just way too easy for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the researchers upped the ante. They changed the challenge. Um so each card now had a pair of items. Um, so the middle card would display something like two crosses or a cross and a circle. Mm-hmm. And then the crows then needed to figure out the relationship between the objects and apply it to another card. So, for instance, if there was this circle and a cross, then the correct card would be like a square and a triangle, not two triangles. So it would be... Two different things oh, okay. rather than two same things. See, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have just gone for the triangles. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I know. It's just crazy. So unsurprisingly, the crows mm. totally aced it, um, which surprised the researchers, not only because the crows could correctly perform these relational matches, but they also did this really spontaneously. Like no one had ever taught them how to do this Um and how objects are related to each other like this, which is a pretty complicated sort of um, concept mm. for any sort of animal to sort of understand, which is, I think, something to crow about. So just just hang on a second. You're telling us that we shouldn't be worried about these birds, even though they're capable of making tools, <laughs> capable of solving problems, and apparently are really paranoid. <laughs> Yeah, I, and you trust them? You're a raven loony.
So you might have heard the news, and I briefly spoke about it in the intro, of the controversial Italian surgeon Sergio Canavero, who plans to take the head of a paralysed human being and transplant it onto a new body. Sounds a little while present. ago? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's saying he's, he's going to be able to do it by next year, 2017 sometime. I it's not the sort of thing you want to set yourself a deadline to... Yeah, so I'm sure you do, don't you? No, oh, well, I, I think you just want to be ready when everything's ready, rather than rushing to get it done. And and this is the, he has caught a lot of uh, criticism for sort of promoting this stuff as you know he's got this goal, and research tends not to work that way. If you if you've got a goal to work towards, you'll leave out confounding information mm. and and unsupportive yeah, you know, findings. And when they said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the, the 60s, whatever like that, they didn't say, oh, we're just going to go up into space and see if we end up at the moon. You know, they, they actually had a goal to get to the moon. They, they, didn't, they like, were also racing. They were racing the Soviet Union to get there. Yeah, so that And they had an unlimited a, budget. Effectively. <laughs> now, look, there are a lot of medical scientists who think this is not a great idea and that really it's still in the realms of science fiction to actually transplant a human head and expect the person whose head it is to survive. There is a great deal of potential for the patient, if they do survive, to be in an incredible amount of pain due to weird nerve severings and all sorts mm. of things. So, But Canavero claims that his experiments are successfully showing his methods will work on a human. He's experimented on mice and most recently on monkeys. But he still hasn't successfully reconnected a spinal cord, which to me seems to be the <laughs> kicker in making this a successful operation. You know, I would be thinking twice if I were going to volunteer in my head as a transplant, and he hadn't successfully transplanted an, a spinal cord. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are there are volunteers, but they are already paralysed. So I guess they're probably kind of thinking, well... I'd be keeping the monkeys away from this guy. What have they got yeah. to lose? So he's, he's a controversial um, surgeon. But, I mean, the reason for this is that humans are not great at regrowing lost body parts or organs, which is why transplants have for a long time, been the focus of restorative medicine. It's easier to transplant something than fix, you know, badly damaged organs and that sort of thing. But obviously in the animal kingdom, this is not really necessarily the case. There are um, frogs and amphibians, for example, able to grow, regrow lost body parts. The axolotl. The axolotl, even the some frogs. Yeah. Um, lizard species lizard? can regrow their tails. Quite a lot of lizard species can regrow their tails. When and it's the whole them. thing. People are working on this as like to extend to humans as well, like regenerative medicine is, mm. a, is a research field. Yeah, and it's you know the the stem cell research is basically mm. trying to do this: is how can we reprogram yeah. our our own cells to to regrow um, parts that we need to replace. So obviously, the unique genetics of these animals allow them to kickstart parts of their genome that they need to use to rebuild the missing parts without having to go through that rigmarole of being an embryo because there's actually nothing that can really do that. Although some jellyfish can do something very similar, mm. reverse their life cycle. Having having a genome that can kickstart just the bit you need, just yeah. the hand genes or just the leg genes, that's really useful. And, and obviously some animals can do that. But in even simpler organisms, genetics can have even stranger properties when they're put under very specific conditions. Now, I don't know if you know what flatworms are. Do you know what flatworms are? Nematodes? No. 
they're something different. Vaguely related. Planarians, that's the word I'm looking for. Planarians is very good. Flatworms are an incredibly ancient form of animal. They're mostly found in the ocean, but there are other places they are found as well because they're closely related to liver flukes and yes. tapeworms. Are they found? Are they, are they parasitic? Yeah. Are there some that are parasitic? The, most of the them ones are... that aren't in the ocean are mostly parasitic <laughs> and they're mostly not very good for us or whichever yeah. their host is. Um, but the common feature of the flatworms is that they are capable of regenerating very readily. So if you cut them up into little pieces, you'll get those little pieces regenerating into worms again. Just like in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah, when you smash up the broom and it just pops into more little brooms. Um, They also, there's a feature about the way that they're, you know, the the flatworm equivalent of a brain forms and the synaptic connections they make in the head end of the flatworm alters the shape of the head and of the body, depending on how it sort of fits itself together. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not directly linked to the genes the individual species carry. So there's thousands of species mm. of these things and their heads are all slightly different as a result of the way their brains assemble themselves. Oh. Um, so scientists based at the Centre for Regenerative and Developmental Bi- Biology at Tufts University in Boston were investigating flatworms to try and understand how this process worked. Uh, and as I said, they regenerate quite readily following injury. So the team decided to remove the heads of some worms completely to better study the process and they also uh, after removing the head they disrupted the regenerative process using a gap junction blocker which in this case was alcohol oh uh, hang on what's a gap junction blocker it stops the synaptic connections from forming okay as quickly um so uh, they prevented the normal formation of the synapses and they induced the decapitated worms into growing new heads. But under different conditions, they didn't grow their original head. What? They grew heads with the same morphology and structure as three related flatworm species. <gasps> so they grew the heads of different species of worms depending on how much of this gap junction blocker they used and how and the conditions that they changed slightly. What? And then, even more amazingly, when they stopped using the gap junction blocker, their heads went back to normal. So they grew the head of a cousin and then they stopped using the gap junction blocker, the alcohol. Mm-hmm. They stopped giving them the terms they, and they grew their own heads back and yeah their heads went back to the went normal, back to normal normal size and shape and morphology so it'd be like if, if someone cut your head off and got you really drunk and you grew back say a rabbit head <laughs> and then as soon as you sobered up it turned back into you again pretty much right pretty much that's pretty amazing so as i said the blocker they were using is a form of alcohol which might suggest potentially that alcohol can have dramatic effects on brain <laughs> function and regeneration um because there was no change in the genetics of the worms. They didn't, change, they didn't have different genes. They didn't alter the genes in any way. Just the expression of the genes was altered during the experiment. <laughs> now, they've, they've suggested this might be a kind of epigenetic function in that genes are being switched on by environmental conditions that are not usually present. But uh, there's been some criticism on using the term epigenetics because that generally refers to an inherited change Mm-hmm. from an environmental condition of the parent generation. Yeah. So they're, they're not actually showing that. 
So anyway, this is a long way off from being helpful in human medicine. Um, obviously, flatworms are quite a lot different. But I can just imagine that if two heads are better than one, then having multiple potential heads in the same organism is surely an advantage in some way. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. science.